Hello and welcome to Cape in Conversation, a vintage books podcast mini-series which celebrates a hundred years of the vintage imprint Jonathan Cape by bringing together some of Cape's finest writers. And today we'll be talking with two of the very finest, Katie Kitamura and Salman Rushdie. I'm Shahid Abari, critic, academic and broadcaster and a Cape author too. I'll be your host for this podcast series as we talk with writers from across the range of generations and genres published by Cape, including novelists Rachel Kushner, Atasha Moshfeg, Julian Barnes and Anne Enright, graphic novelist Alison Beckdell and journalists Afwa Hirsch and George Packer. But today we're talking with two writers who are expansively global and cosmopolitan in their worldviews and yet powerfully intimate in their understanding of human relationships. Katie Kitamura is the author of four novels, including A Separation, which was named a best book of the year by over a dozen publications and is, excitingly, being adapted for film. Her novels Gone to the Forest and The Long Shot were both finalists for the New York Public Library's Young Lions Fiction Award. Katie's written for The New York Times and The Guardian, and she teaches creative writing at New York University. Her latest novel, Intimacies, about a young woman working as an interpreter at the International Court of The Hague, and which is so compelling, is out in August. Salman Rushdie is the author of 14 novels, including Midnight's Children, for which he won the Booker Prize and the Best of the Bookers, The Satanic Verses, and more recently, the Booker shortlisted Quichotte. He's written across different forms, including his gripping memoir, Joseph Anton, and his latest book, Languages of Truth, a collection of essays which includes reflections on the artist Kara Walker, the actor Carrie Fisher, and meditations on literature and nationalism. He's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and he was knighted in 2007 for services to literature. Hello, Katie and Salman. Hello. Hello. It's lovely having you. I have to say that's quite an intro, you two. So, you know, we really have to live up to that billing. Wow. Um, Let me tell you, I'm in South London right now. And this morning it was spring and it was bright and blossomy. But right now we've just had a bit of thunder, a spot of lightning, some diagonal rain. Where is it where you are, Salman? Cloudy. Cloudy, but cloudy, but quite reasonably warm. In New York? In New York. I I think we're both in New York, although probably in different boroughs. That's right. I'm in I'm in Brooklyn, where I've I've been for the entire uh, pandemic and lockdown. And today it is similarly cloudy. The sky's the same as over Manhattan. Well, that's making me feel better <laughs> about being in gloomy London. I wish you thunder and lightning too. Um, I'm assuming that you two have met before on the festival circuit, perhaps, or in in writer circles. Is that right? Yeah, we. I mean, we've been friends for quite a long time now. I think, and and seen each other in all sorts of places. That's right. Some mentionable, some mentionable, <laughs> some not. <laughs> I think that's right. It, it varies from the festival circuit to bits of, of, of downtown Manhattan. So, yeah, and it has been years now. I think it, it's coming up. I, I, we, must, we must know each other for about a decade, possibly. So I think it probably is yeah, about 10 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, it's nice that you're so comfortable with each other. We need to get to the unspeakable stuff <laughs> in this podcast. And that's the, the goal of the, the Cape in Conversation series. So we're celebrating 100 years of Jonathan Cape by talking to some of our finest novelists. And we've brought you two together, partly because you're such accomplished writers, of course, and also because we thought that there might be something intriguing in bringing together a, a younger female writer with an older male writer. I feel sure that you'll have things to say to each other. But, but reading your works again over the last few weeks in preparation for this, it also strikes me that 
those are quite superficial differences. And actually, you have something much deeper in common, which is that you are writers of the world, writers with complex heritage and multiple nationalities, Japanese, American, British, Indian, and writers whose work too is is is, is catching at that global sensibility. You're, you're cosmopolitan writers. Would that be a way that you would recognise yourself? Katie, you go first. Well, yes, absolutely. There's a, a line in one of the essays in Salman's book where he talks about India, um, the UK and the United States being three countries that are very important to him. And I suddenly thought, you know, it's, it's very similar for me. The United States, Britain and Japan are all countries that are very, very important to me. Um, and I really grew up kind of across or between cultures. And as a result, I think that sense of rootlessness and disorientation is really very central to the way I think about the world and the way I think about my own writing. Um, you know, I don't feel myself to be somebody who is firmly oriented towards a single culture or a single country. Um, my parents uh, don't really have a typical American immigration story in that they moved from Japan to the United States in their early 20s, and then they moved back to Japan in their early 40s permanently. And I then kind of grew up in California with long stretches of time in Japan, but then spent about a decade in London and now close to a decade in New York. So that sense of movement is, I think, really important to how I think about fiction and how I think about the world in general. Yeah, and I, I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I think of it as rootlessness, and sometimes I think of it as multiple rooting. I mean, I feel like when I'm in England, I feel I have very deep roots there. And similarly, when I, I'm able to go to India, which right now, of course, nobody can. Um, similarly, particularly in, in, in Bombay, which I don't call Mumbai. And similarly, now after 21 years in New York, I feel I feel it here, you know. So it, it varies. It, I think it's a question of mood, you know. Like sometimes you feel that you don't belong anywhere, and sometimes you feel that you actually do belong in all these places in some quite intimate and valuable way, you know. I mean, unlike Katie, my parents never migrated. You know, my, I, my parents went on living in, in first India and later in Pakistan. But I essentially stayed in England after graduating from university and was there for a very long time, as you know, and, and and then for the last 21 years managed to make this move to New York, which I'd always kind of fantasized about. So, and, and ever since I, mean, I first came to New York when I was in my early 20s, I guess, you know, in, which was that other New York City of the, of the 70s, which was sort of dirty and broke and dangerous and very young and full of artists downtown of all kinds and incredibly exciting if you were young yourself, you know. And from that time, I thought, one day, I'm going to come and put myself here and see what happens. And by the time I did that, of course, it was a different New York. Mm. Uh, but but it's still New York City, you know, and and, and, and I'm still here. I, I think it it's always interesting to talk to writers like you two, but I think it's especially interesting to talk to you both right now as, as the coronavirus has, has closed many of our borders. But also in this this extended period in which national borders have felt like they've closed in different ways, um, claims to citizenship have become fraught, 
political issues. Perhaps they always were, but more so than ever, it seems to me. In fact, as you were talking about rootlessness, Salman, I was thinking about how the former UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, would have called, well, she would have called both of you citizens of nowhere. And I wonder whether whether you have had to reflect on this 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 particular moment, not only because of your your heritage and your multiple nationalities, but simply as as writers who also always seem to me to be to be pushing at borders. Do, do writers have to be thinking about this, Salman? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, also nowhere is not such a bad place to be. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I think. Uh, I don't really feel like a writer of any particular nation, you know. Um, um, I've always actually felt that I belong. I have a stronger sense of belonging to cities than to countries, you know. So, so, I, so I have a very strong sense of belonging to Bombay, but not, you know, and and to London and to New York, more than the countries in which they are, you know. Uh, and there was a point at which. Cosmopolitanism was kind of a dirty word in yeah. literary criticism. You, you know, you you weren't supposed to be it. And and I remember a million years ago when I started out, there were there were people who would criticize my work for for this the crime of cosmopolitanism. But I do think that I'm a writer of the city. You know, I think that a city is a place where cultures collide. You know, where where languages and races and peoples you know, bump into each other in the street every day, um, and how you represent that multiplicity as a writer has always been a question that I've asked myself. You know? And there's one time when I when I wrote my novel Shalimar the Clown, when I deliberately set myself the task of writing a novel that was set in a village. You know, I, I thought, you know, I should be able to do that. You know, uh, uh, and so I left the comfort zone of the big city, you know, and in order to go to it tiny village in Kashmir, you know, and, and to set the book there. And I felt actually very proud of that because because it was the thing that wasn't natural to me, you know, but I think you sometimes have to try that. But I do think that, I mean, if I had to define myself in a, in a phrase, I would say that I'm a big city writer, you know, and, and that shaped me perhaps more than anything else. Katie? It's funny, Salman, because I think I emailed you at some point during the pandemic and I asked where you were and you wrote back and you said, I'm, I'm in New York, I've been here the whole time. And you know, there was a moment early on in the pandemic when it felt like a lot of people were leaving the city. They were really decamping yep. and getting out. Yep. And, and then I, and I, you know, I, I suppose I was a little surprised. So many of my friends had, had left. And then I suddenly thought, it's not in the least bit surprising that Salman, that the person who's written these books you know, set in the city that are just saturated with love for the city would not leave the city during the pandemic. And I found that kind of, you know, inc incredibly moving and reassuring. I, you know, I love that you you stayed here. And, I, and I do really think of you as a, as a great writer of the city. Thank you. Well, you know, I, did, I don't have a house in the Hamptons. You know, or Rhinebeck, or so I didn't have anywhere to yeah. escape to. Yeah. And I'm sure that will happen again. Katie, there's a, there's a, you have a, we're talking about cities and you have a very particular sense of place in, in your new novel, In, in Intimacies, um, which is about a, a young woman who is new to the Netherlands, working as an interpreter at The Hague. And it is, what's so remarkable about that novel, I think, and about, you both have this quality, is, is, the, is the grand scale of the political drama and trauma that's unfolding in the court cases that she's dealing with. 
and the smaller scale of, of dislocation that a young woman feels in a, in a new city forging fragile new relationships. And, and those two things, the larger political and the smaller intimate, your word, intimacies, personal, they seem connected. Is that right? I mean, I think this is one of the things that the novel is actually very, very good at, um, is looking at the position of the individual in relation to a larger political context or social context, you know, thinking about how the individual fits into a network, um, whether that is of institutions or governments or simply family and friends. Um, and I think a lot of very, very good writers really mine that gap between the individual as they see themselves and experience themselves and the individual as they are kind of processed and contextualized by society or by a system. Um, and so I think in a way, it, that kind of toggling between those two systems, trying to occupy that space is really central to what the novel is able to do. I, I mean, I also think that fiction is so good at looking at the difference between um, the message as it's delivered and the message as it's actually lived out and enacted in the day-to-day -day kind of minutiae and granular detail of a life. Um, I think a novel has a space for a lot of ambiguity and contradiction um, and inconsistency that sometimes larger political uh, systems or institutions don't necessarily allow themselves. And I think that's definitely something that I was thinking about as I was writing is trying to kind of hold open a space for that ambiguity and for that contradiction, um, especially because over the last few years, I think we've really been um, kind of conditioned and primed to think in terms of polarities and think in terms of absolutes. And I think the work of the novel is really to hold open a space where you can resist that those kinds of absolutes and where you can really look at particularity and specificity. Salman, you, you're, you're nodding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I agree. I agree with every word of what Katie just said. I think it's very important. Um, I've always thought, you know, I was a, by training, by academic training, I was a historian, uh, not, not, a, not a literature student. And one of the great questions of history is exactly that, the question of the relationship between society and the individual. You know, uh, do, do we make the world or does the world make or unmake us? You know, um, do we have the ability to change the world in which we live or does it change and make a remake us? You know, what, what is that? What is that transaction? Um, and what kind of agency do individuals have, you know, in the larger space of, of the macrocosm? You know, and, and I've always tried to find, if you like, meet crossroads, you know, at, at which at which the big public world intersects with the small private life, you know, and 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 to try to think about who does what to whom in that uh, at that crossroads. Um, I mean, one thing actually, also, I thought reading Katie's book Intimacies is it reminded me of when I was first living in New York when I first came here around the turn of the century, and the first book I wrote, Fury, was also a novel of arrival. You know, it was, it was, I, I thought I can't write the kind of novel that somebody born and bred in the city could write. You know, I, it's not for me to try and write a Don DeLillo novel, you know, a boy born in the Bronx and, and who has the city in his blood, you know. Um, but one of the great stories of New York is, is arrival. 
it's a, it's a city in which people are constantly arriving. And so I thought I can write that one because because that's something I, I know about because I've just done it. Mm. You know, so, And I thought Katie's, Katie's character arriving in The Hague and trying to accustom herself to the language of a different world, you know, was I reminded me very much of my first attempts to to talk about um, coming to America, you know, um, in a kind of non Eddie Murphy. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great um, model of, of uh, arrival too, in its own way. Can I pick up on on? Um, we won't talk about the sequel that has just been released, but can I pick up on one of the the the, the details? Actually, it, it's a detail in one. I was going to say it's a detail in one of your essays, someone, but actually, I think it appears in several of the essays in your collection, uh, Languages of Truth, and it's about. Is the way in which you write about your influences from from the Indian wonder tales of your youth to Cervantes and Shakespeare, but you you also observe how literature can be in the service of nationalism too, in particular the, the BJP in India reclaiming the Ramayana, and I and it struck me that there's something very delicate here about the foundational literature of a nation and how it how it gives a person a sense of rooting and, and the literature that then can become the basis of a nationalism. And, and that seems to be a very delicate relationship. Yeah, I, I remember a, a writer I used to know back in the 1970s who was very concerned about this question of of national writing, you know. I, I mean, I've sometimes worried about writers like Amos Oz that they get turned into the national writer, you know, and, and very difficult for them to function as creative artists when you have that burden, you know. Uh, anyway, this this guy I used to know used to used to talk about not wanting to be what he called a behalfy. <laughs> he, said, I don't, he said, "I don't write on behalf of anybody. I don't want to be yeah. a behalfy." And I always thought that was a really useful phrase. There is something really alluring about the rootless person. Certainly your your heroines, Katie, your heroine in intimacies. And, and, and Salman just mentioned what it means to arrive in a new place and learn a new language. And I, and I wanted to ask you about your narrator, whose job is, is, is being a translator. And that seems that seems more than a device. It seems like a really profound aspect of the novel and this character, because... It allows them fluency, not just linguistic, but an, this ability to slide invisibly between the different cultures that they're negotiating in, in The Hague. But it also leaves your, your narrator feeling alienated or isolated too. Um, and I suspect that both of you, like me, speak more than one language. Am I, I mean, Katie, I'm assuming you might beat both of us. I'm assuming you're in the dozens of languages. No, I, I, I wish. I, I think whenever I write these characters who are who are multilingual, I'm enacting some kind of fantasy <laughs> version of myself that is very sadly, very sadly lacking. But I mean, I, I mean, I grew up in a household where two languages were spoken, and I think, I mean, one of the interesting things about growing up in a in a in a language of it, sorry, in a household where there is more than one language being spoken, is you very quickly as a child understand both the possibilities and also the limitations of language. You know, there are things, for example, that you can say in Japanese that you can't say in English and, and vice versa. And I think also when you are um, growing up in a household where the primary language is not the dominant language of the culture that you're in, yeah. um, you do very quickly on a very primal, visceral way as a, as a small child, you understand that there's a correlation between access to language and power. Um, and I think, you know, the person who has access to language is the person who has power. And I think 
that is something that has really informed all of my writing and certainly informs the way I think about language. Um, and that is definitely um, written into this character who, you know, I was interested in writing somebody who, who was watching from the sidelines and who was very invested in the idea of her neutrality. Her job is to take words from a long, one language and put them into another language as neutrally as possible. Um, but I think the difficulty is that language isn't at all neutral, as, as we've just been speaking about. Um, you know, it, it is language is a system like any other kind of system. And I think part of what I was interested in thinking about is what happens to a character who has, you know, invested so much in thinking about herself as neutral, discovers that in a lot of ways she is implicated in the institution that she works for, in the language she has access to, in the mm. social network she's part of. Um, and trying to think of how a character like that, what that moment of realization would look like and what, how you would maneuver out of that situation is, is certainly something that I was thinking about. I mean, I, I, I thought your, your previous question was a really interesting one and the kind of basis of this novel, I, I mean, the kind of seed, um, when I first started thinking about it, it was probably well over 10 years ago. It must've been, yes, over 10 years ago. Um, I heard a kind of snippet on the radio, probably the BBC of Charles Taylor speaking right. in his defense at his trial in The Hague. And, you know, Taylor was a kind of very celebrated um, in his, his oratory was very celebrated. And there was something extremely unnerving and troubling about the experience of hearing him speak because he was simultaneously kind of ludicrous and monstrous, but also a little bit persuasive and quite compelling. And that was a moment when I thought there was really something to be unpacked, not just in the kind of theatricality and the performative aspect of the court, but also in that essential unreliability of language mm. and rhetoric and storytelling and the way that it can really be brought in to serve many, many different causes and not all of them good. Yeah. Mm. I think there's a really chilling moment in your book when she when the, when his when the dictator's words are coming out of her mouth in a different language you know, and and she she hears herself speaking those those words and uh, i made it actually gave me a little shiver when i when i read you. that because um, it's so it's it, yeah it's so it's so Thank powerful you. Um, but i agree yeah no really uh, but what I also, I, I, like Katie, grew up in, in a house with more than one language, you know, and I mean, like, for example, my mother, my mother spoke perfectly good English, but she didn't like to do so. You know, um, uh, she, she said it made her tongue feel tired. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and so we had a, a household in which, in which different languages were spoken naturally all the time. You know, a question would be asked in English and answered in Urdu. You know, and and even in, at the level of the sentence, you know, you you an English sentence would have Urdu words dropped into it, or and vice versa, and vice versa, just depending what words seem most appropriate. As Katie was saying, there are things you can say better in one language than than in another. Uh, but I also always felt that changing language, speaking in a different language, also changes who you are. Mm. You know, that 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 when you when you when you move away from, let's say, the mother tongue um, into another language, you become a slightly different person, you know. And 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 I've always found, like going back to India and slipping back into Hindi Urdu, 
or the language called Hindustani, which is what everybody speaks and doesn't exist. Um, I feel that it's slightly different, you know, um, and very uh, strikingly what happens when I've been there for a little bit is that the language of my dreams changes. Really? You know, uh, that uh, that in, instead of dreaming in English, I'm, I'm not dreaming in English, you know, and, and that makes me feel like another person, you know, so I think that there's also the effect on character of a language shift, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting yeah. to me. There's a Joseph Anton. Your your memoir Salman isn't written in a different mm. language, although I'm sure it's been translated. But I, what I'm trying to get at is that it's a memoir written in the third person, and so in a way there is a mm. kind of distancing or a kind of arm's length quality, and yeah. and it's it's a really compelling book about really painful moments you. in your life. I think that the the failure yeah. of marriages, the yeah. the intensity of the fatwa period of your life. What were you trying to capture there, and, and and what about this this third person narration? What were you doing there? Yeah, well, really, what happened is I I didn't when I started writing it, I, I was writing it much more conventionally in the first person, and and I just didn't like it. You know, I th I thought all all this I I got I got annoyed with the I. I thought you know shut up, <laughs> and um, it felt so kind of narcissistic almost. You know. Um, and I, and then what I because I wanted the book to feel almost novelistic, you know, I, 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 and and what I thought was in a memoir the character called I has a completely different weight to all the other characters called he and she because of the because of the identification of the I with the author, right. you know? and I thought if I change that if I turn the character which is me into just one of the very various he's and she's that are in the book that it puts that character down at the same level as the other characters. And so that I can write about them as a group of characters, including the character with my name. You know? And so that's what, in a way, gave me the freedom to write the book somehow, thinking about it like that. And, and um, I mean, another writer might not have had that problem, you know, but, but I did. <laughs> uh, he did. <laughs> but listen, do you have questions that you might like to ask each other? Uh, Salman, I have a I have a question for for you, if I may. Um, there's a moment in one of the essays when you're talking about you you speak about finding the voice for Salim and Midnight's children, and you say mm. that that was a moment when you first really found felt yourself to be a writer. I think you say, mm. and 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 you speak about it so beautifully. I actually wrote it down. You, you said um, mm. you said it's a voice that was not my own and yet gave me voice. And mm. I suppose I just wondered what. What were the other epiphanies along the way? Were there were there other kind of moments with a book where something just fell into place, something slotted into place, and it actually changed you as a writer? Yeah, I think yes. I think that you know it it's happened a few times. I mean, I I remember, for example, when I was first thinking of what became the Satanic Verses, I, I wasn't even sure that it was one book. You know, because it has these different narrative strands that interweave. You know, um, and I thought maybe it's three books. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong to think of this as one book. Uh, there's a book about immigration in London in the 1980s, and and then there are these more f fabulous narratives. You know, um, and for a long time I didn't I didn't know how to reconcile that. You know? And and then somehow the presence of Characters called named after the Archangel Gabriel in all the stories. Um, 
I thought, oh, this is about the many lives of the Archangel Gabriel. And, and, uh, and I thought, okay, now I know how to write it. Mm. You know, it was just having, doesn't mean any, I mean, I don't think anybody reading the book reads it, particularly reads it in that way, you know. Um, but for me, it gave me the, the kind of connecting link, link to the narratives and, to, and, and showed me how to weave those stories into each other. Um, so, it, so it ended up, it was one book, it wasn't, it wasn't three books. And some people liked it. <laughs> so I'm, I've, I've never told you this, but I actually, when I was in, in graduate school, I, I took an entire course devoted to the Satanic Verses. The entire oh, semester wow. was, oh, was, right. was, was about reading the Satanic Verses. Wow. Yeah. Oh well, well that's well. Gosh, well you probably know it better than me in that case. <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that is that your question to, to well, Katie? No, I want to. No, no. I, uh, I, mean, I wanted to ask that you know in in your books you you do do this very kind of in a way very large scale thing of trying to we were talking about earlier of connecting individual lives to much larger subjects. You know. But the books aren't huge, you know. The, the books don't kind of—they're they're not big social novels, you know. It's—it's it, it, it's not like a, you know, like the, the Golden Bowl or you know, or, or the, the, the Portrait of a Lady or you know, um, or the Adventures of Augie Marsh or you know, um, books like that. And I've just wondered whether you—I mean, I'm finding that maybe the really long books are behind me. You know, um, I don't. I don't think I have six hundred pages in me anymore. Uh, I'm just wondering whether you have an urge to go big. Um, it, I, I noticed this because another writer, friend of mine, Paul Oster, most of whose books have been, you know, like two hundred and fifty pages or, or or less. In his last two books, has suddenly gone huge. Has written like a mm -hmm. thousand page novel, mm. and now like a nine hundred page book about the about the writer Stephen Crane. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of in his later phase, he's suddenly gone huge. And I'm wondering whether you have that desire to write that what Henry James called a loose baggy monster. Um, I, I love that question. And it's funny that you bring up Paul because Siri Hustved, his, his wife, actually sat me down at dinner uh, a couple of years ago, I think. And she said, you've got to write the big novel. You've got to write a big, mm. a big novel. Um, and it, it's... It's not my natural compulsion, I don't think. I, I think it, it's funny, my, my husband, Hari, who's, who's also a, a novelist, and, and uh, he writes almost the exact opposite style mm. to me. He writes mm. big, sprawling, mm. multi-stranded. Mm. You know, when he says it's a short novel, it's probably 130,000 words and double the <laughs> length of, of, of my novels. And, and, you know, I write these much more smaller and kind of contained pieces and it's actually kind of you can see it throughout in our domestic life as well you know like I cook very small stews that I stir a lot for many many hours and Hari is all about the flash fry and like there's I don't know smoke and fire going around everywhere um so it, it's not my it's not my natural compulsion I think I you know I, I grew up reading so much Japanese fiction which is often very very yeah. small and very very yeah. short um but at the same time then there's the Makioka sisters I mean I think it is it is it is absolutely something that I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm gearing my way up toward. I think for me, the most, and maybe this is going back to the useful part of the podcast where you talk about, um, about kind of like writing practice things. For me, the most difficult part of writing is, is holding my nerve for the years that it takes to write a yeah. novel. 
um, you know, of, of, of renewing my belief in it, that it is actually a thing for those many years and, and months. And I think I'm, I'm gearing myself up to, to holding my breath for the many months and years that it takes to write a very yeah. a big we're, novel. We're, we look forward to the, the big the big, the big baggy monster Cajun. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, listen it's a it's a hundred years of cape books we're celebrating books of all kind all kinds uh and it is a vintage podcast tradition to ask you for a reader recommendation so to end just very briefly is there is there something that you would direct our listeners t- to go read salman you go first well you know i would suggest they read the makioka sisters um i i i, I remember when Midnight's Children was bought by Alfred Knopf in America. I remember the first time I went into the offices and I met the editor, Bob Gottlieb, the legendary editor at Knopf. And and, um, he said, I'm going to give you a book, he said, and I believe that it has been my duty as a publisher to keep this book in print because it's better than Anna Karenina. Uh, And and he gave me the Makioka sisters. And I thought, oh, yeah, sure, it's better than Anna Karenina. Of course it is. You know, and I went home and started reading it, and I thought, "Good God, you know, it's actually it's better than Anna Karenina." You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I would recommend Junichiro Tanizaki, the Makioka Sisters. Wow, Katie. Um, I think the book that I've been recommending during this pandemic, certainly, and during the lockdown, is Anna Sego's Transit. Um, and Sego's is a German writer, and she wrote the novel during the Second World War, and it's just about a. A, a, a young man who's escaped a concentration camp and is stranded in Marseille and is trying to get the right papers to leave France and, and go to Mexico. And it's, it's, it's kind of an incredible novel about refugees, about borders, about bureaucracy. There's a kind of absurdist quality to it. Um, but it, it's, it's truly extraordinary to me. She published it in 1942, and I think she wrote it very quickly in Mexico once she was able to leave France. And, and that ability to write so um, with such clarity and such complexity about a situation that was still unfolding around her um, really strikes me as remarkable. And it is just a fantastic novel. So Anna Sager's Transit. Oh, great, great, great suggestions. Thank you so much, Katie Kitamura and Salman Rushdie. What a joy to talk to you. And thank you for listening to Cape in Conversation on the Vintage Books podcast with me, Shahid Abari. You'll find details of Salman's and Katie's latest books in the show notes, as well as my book, Dressed, The Secret Life of Clothes, which is part of Cape's non-fiction list. If you'd like to learn more about the storied history of Jonathan Cape Publishing, you'll find a great article in the bookseller that tells you just that. And we'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. You can leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast or get in touch at Vintage Books on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Instagram. The Vintage Books podcast is back in two weeks and I'll be back in six weeks talking to our next pair of Cape writers, political and cultural commentators Afwa Hirsch and George Packer.